0: This morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We are concluding our series on the dawn of redeeming grace as we have walked through that devotional book this season. The children are going to be with us today, so if they have not picked up one of those children's bulletins out in the foyer, they're sure welcome to do that even now. Um, There's some activities for them to do, some places for them to take some notes and draw some pictures so they can do that and be a part of the service As we walk together, we have been, as I mentioned, we've been walking through the devotional book, uh, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. He's helped us to see in Matthew's chapter 1 and 2, he's helped us to see this, this story. And a number of you have commented to me in these past couple of weeks just how good it has been to walk through that book and to read those those devotionals, and especially to do them together, that all of us have have been corporately reading those together and been in the same passages and having some of the same thoughts. So I've been encouraged by that. I hope you have been as well. Dr. Ferguson breaks up these two chapters, chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew. uh, He breaks them up into four different categories that we've been walking through. The first week, we walked through the family tree, through the genealogy of Jesus, and, and we walked through a number of those different names there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, pointing out some of the different stories that we saw through some of those names in the genealogy. And I told you that day, I've said this each week that we've been together, the culmination of the genealogy is not in the names that are listed there, but it's in the title that we find at the end. Of chapter 1, verse 16, it ends with, Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, and he was called Christ. It's not about the names, it's about the title, that God has sent the promised Messiah, that Jesus has come, and we call him the Christ. So the genealogy is summed up in that, the family tree is summed up in Christ, the Messiah. Then the second week, we talked about the parents, in the rest of chapter 1, uh, deals with the, the birth story of Jesus in chapter 1 of Matthew. And we walked through the different parents. We have, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, she, was, she was really unexceptional, except that she was favored by God and she was a willing servant. She was willing to do what God had called her to do. And she was a virgin, and that brings us then to the second parent in the story god himself who who impregnates mary and and through that work of the holy ghost with that work of the holy spirit in mary we have the incarnation we have virgin birth we have all of that put together what we have what we have in god and mary is a break in the human family line so that jesus could come so that we don't, have, we, we, we don't have another human from a human father and a human mother, but instead we have God sending his son into a human woman. So we have both fully God and fully human united together in Jesus. And then Joseph, the third parent in the story, while his part may not look or seem as significant, the gospel picture that Joseph paints for us is huge that Joseph could have sent Mary off he could have turned his back on her he could have he could have had her thrown out he could have divorced her he could have mocked her and shamed her he could have heaped guilt upon her he could have had her killed but he doesn't do any of that with Mary but instead instead brings her in he brings her closer he he does not put her out and then adopts Jesus adopts the baby into his family, gives him the family name, trains him in the family business, cares for him, watches over him, makes him an heir in the family. And that picture of the gospel is so huge for us because because God could have turned his back on us. He could have mocked and shamed and heaped guilt upon us. We deserved death. But instead, God, through his son Jesus, made a way for us to be brought into the family. And we share the family name and we are co-heirs with Christ. Matthew chapter 2 then, the third story that we have looked at is the story of the visitors. That's the story we looked at last week. We we alluded to it even this morning as we opened here in Matthew chapter 2. The story of the visitors had, had three different sections. There was the section of those who came, the Magi, the wise men, the ones who traveled far away, they saw a star appear, they knew it was significant, they knew that it meant something. In fact, they, they understood the prophecies. Many of them, from we looked at from back in, in Numbers and, and, and talked about Daniel helping them to see the prophecies that had been, pro, that had been proclaimed all through the Old Testament, these wise men understood them, they knew them, they traveled at a great distance, a, a long way, at a considerable expense, so that they could bestow honor, so that they could worship the king of the Jews. They traveled west, they traveled into Jerusalem so that they could meet this new king, but when they get there, they begin to ask around. Nobody knows, or no one is, is willing to share with them at first where this new king might be. And so Herod, the king of the Jews at that time, gathers in his, his advisors and finds out where this prophecy was to take place in Bethlehem, and he gives that word then to the Magi. And we talked last week about the Magi came to worship, but Herod, Herod wanted, he wanted to go not to worship, though that's what he says, he wanted to go so that he could dispose of this king. Herod was ruthless. Herod, Herod was merciless. Herod, Herod would do whatever it took to destroy a rival to the throne. He would do whatever it took to, to take care of anyone who might have a claim on the throne. That's why, he, that's why he had his own wife murdered, his brother-in-law murdered, his own sons that might think they had some kind of right to the throne. Herod had them murdered as well. And so he calls the Magi in, he gives them directions on where they to go, and then he says, come back. When you you find him, bring word back to me so that I might worship him as well. But we all know that Herod's true desire was to get rid of this claim to the throne. His response, Herod's response to Jesus was one of hatred, was one of repulsion, was one of vile and, and revenge. Herod wanted to be rid of Jesus. But there's a third group that, that they didn't visit. They didn't want to. They didn't put any effort into it. They just didn't go at all. And that's the scribes and the Pharisees. When Herod wanted to know what the prophecy said, they, he called in his council of Jewish advisors. He called in the scribes and the chief priests. And, and they immediately, immediately gave all the information about exactly where this king would be born. They they, they quoted it right out of Micah. They said, he's he's going to be born in in Bethlehem. It's clear as day that that's where the king will be born. Bethlehem is the place. They had the information. They knew exactly exactly where he was going to be, but they didn't care. They had the information, but they did not have the transformation that the Magi did to come and worship. Instead Instead of saying, I know exactly where it is. Come with me. Follow me. I will take you there. I want to go and worship as well. They said, it's down the road in Bethlehem. That's where it's supposed to happen. They had apathy. They didn't care. The response of the Magi, though, is what we wanted to celebrate last week. That when the star reappears and it rests over Joseph and Mary's house, as we read this morning, Matthew tells us that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and they opened up their treasures and they offered gifts. They fell down and they worshiped the King of Kings. Now, one of the things that Dr. Ferguson shared in in the passages that we read this week or the chapters that we read for this week was the idea of what happened. We, we see the picture here in Matthew chapter 2 that the, the magi come, they, they bring their gifts of gold and, and frankincense and myrrh. They, they at least, it appears they spend a few days there probably because there's at least some time for some dreams to happen in the midst of that. So they probably spend some time there. We don't know how long, but Dr. Ferguson paints a little bit of a picture of what would those days have been like as the magi are there with Mary and Joseph. What did they what did they talk about? What did they what did they what stories did they tell? I can I can imagine these these wise and, and learned men that have traveled so far, they they were again they were the, the reason that they were wise men, the reason they were magi was because they, they had great knowledge. They understood all kinds of different things, different areas. And and they probably had all kinds of things that they could share with Mary and Joseph. They probably began to talk about the prophecies that, that they had known of and that they had studied and, and began to talk about the star that they saw and the journey that they made to get there and, and, and share all of those stories. And Mary and Joseph, these, these two, she was probably a, a, a teenage girl. He was a, a, a lowly carpenter. They too began to share stories that the Magi would, would not have known it's probably, at this point, they'd been several months for sure since Jesus had been born. They'd already gone and they'd already had Jesus circumcised. They'd already had the, if you look at, at, at the story in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and 3, you already see the story of, of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the, to the temple and Simeon and Anna are there. Those, those things have already happened. And Mary and Joseph had, have, have seen all these things and, and they, they were there when the shepherds showed up. And, and all of this has happened. And so they began to share these stories with the Magi and they began to trade notes back and forth. And you can only imagine what those days were like as the Magi s- sat there with Mary and Joseph and they began to swap stories back and forth. I can only anticipate that the worship that the Magi showed up in that that only grew as these stories came out and as they began to reflect on what God was doing. While they're there, we're going to see that there's a couple of dreams that lead to several journeys. And that's really this fourth segment of Matthew chapter two is is the journeys that we read about. Let's read together in Matthew chapter two. I'm gonna start in verse 13 and we'll read to the conclusion of the chapter Starting in verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, talking about the wise men, the magi. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were under two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "'Rise, take the child and his mother "'and go to the land of Israel, "'for those who sought the child's life are dead.' And he rose and took the child and his mother "'and went to the land of Israel.' But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned, in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew concludes this portion of of his story of chapters 1 and 2. He concludes them with a couple of different journeys. uh, A journey into Egypt and a journey out of Egypt and and the journey of the Magi as they head back home, taking a different route as they've been warned by an angel not to come back to Herod. And so we see these different journeys by by Joseph and Mary and Jesus and, and the Magi But Matthew doesn't want us just to see the journeys. He doesn't want us just to see that Joseph and Mary packed up their things and headed off into Egypt and then came out of Egypt. But he wants us to see more than that. And that's why he actually quotes several times here. He quotes some prophecy that comes from the Old Testament because Matthew wants us to see not just the story of what actually happened, Mary, Joseph, Jesus moving around, but he also wants us to see this, the images, the memories, the story that comes from the Old Testament. He wants us to see this much broader picture. And so Matthew points back to the prophets. In this first part of the story, um, Joseph comes, another angelic dream comes to Joseph. He sees uh, a, a, an angel comes, shares with him that it's time for him to flee immediately. Joseph gathers up his family. They travel in the in the dark of night. They begin to head off to get away from Herod because they knew how ruthless Herod was. They knew that Herod uh, had done all the as we shared last week had done all of these things was was ruthless to keep his throne, and they knew exactly that Herod was going to have some kind of response like that as the as the Magi did not return. And so the angel tells them it's time to go. Gather your things. Go now before Herod is going to search out and destroy the child. And so they gather him up. They begin to travel through night. It probably took them a couple of days, several days at least, to make the journey, 150 miles or so probably, that they had to travel to get to safety in Egypt. And so they begin that journey. And Matthew, as he tells us that story, he says, he says, he rose, he took the child, his mother by night. They departed to Egypt and they remained there till the death of Herod. And then he says, in verse 15, this was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew is, is very clear that he wants us again to see this picture. And this picture, particularly this picture that we find here in verse 15, that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We, we here at Richland, we have this unique opportunity here to see both sides of this prophecy that comes out of out of Hosea chapter 2. This quote, out of Egypt I called my son, is Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. And we've already referenced that. You remember, we, it, it, several weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, we, we referenced that passage as we walked through Exodus chapters 3 and chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 22, this is what God says to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That's the first place in Scripture that we begin to see that picture, that we begin to see the picture of God calling Israel, God calling the Hebrew people his child, his son. We saw it first in Exodus. That's what Hosea, when he's, being quote, when he's quoting in, in Hosea chapter 2, he's pointing back to Exodus chapter 4. Remember he says, remember, God called the Hebrews, God called the Israelites his son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It reminds us of the whole Exodus story, which we don't, we don't have to talk about much today. We, we kind of have that picture. We're working through that story as we walk through Exodus, which we'll jump back into in January. But that story, that story starts with a famine that, that crosses all over the land. And Joseph in back in Genesis, Joseph has been put, Joseph, the son of Jacob, has been put into power through a miraculous cause of events that God has orchestrated together. Joseph is in power during the years of plenty so that he might be able to store up the supplies so that Egypt might survive during the upcoming famine. It's during that, it's during that famine that, that God brings Jacob and his family back to Joseph. It's during that famine that, that Joseph had stored up all of these supplies that his father Jacob and, the, and his brothers end up returning to, or coming, not returning, but coming into Egypt for the first time there. They are literally, they're literally looking for greener pastures. The, the the famine has has destroyed the promised land that J- Jacob and his his sons had settled into and they needed a they needed food they needed a place to go they needed a place to survive and so they come to Egypt looking for that and when they get there they find Joseph they don't know him at first they don't understand all that has happened but through the midst of their finding out and, and, and Joseph revealing himself to them, they, the whole family moves down. The whole family is rescued. The whole family is saved because of God orchestrating all that together for Joseph. It's a great, if you, if you don't know it, it's a great story in, the, in Genesis, the end of Genesis, the last part. Read that story. But they, they get to Egypt and they have this favored status for a while. Jacob's family, Joseph's family, because of of the the things that Joseph has done. And, And they have this favored status for a while, but then Scripture tells us that there's a new Pharaoh as we move into Exodus. There was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, did not remember Joseph, and he's intimidated by the Israelites. He's intimidated by the Hebrew people, by Joseph's family. And so Joseph's family goes from being favored... And having a favored status to, to now they, they become less than and then they become enslaved and oppressed. And as we have already studied in Exodus, at the beginning of Exodus, they begin to cry out, hoping, pleading that God might rescue them. And God does rescue them as we have already seen. God rescues them by sending, sending Moses sending a rescuer, sending one who is going to lead them out of that slavery, who's going to lead them out of that oppression, who's going to lead them out and rescue them. Moses is the one. Moses is the picture that God sends of Jesus. And God sends Moses to call out his son. And Matthew wants us to see that. He he can't spell it out any clearer. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken He wants his hearers, he wants his readers to know that God has done it before. Our God is a rescuing God. Our God is one who has has made promises to rescue his people. He was faithful. He was faithful to the Hebrews in the time of the Exodus when he raised up Moses to call out his son, and he is will be faithful again to his people. He has promised to provide a Messiah. And he's going to do it. And he has, in fact, done it. Matthew wants us to see that God is a rescuing God and that there's hope in the midst of it. This was to fulfill that the Lord had spoken, out of Egypt I call my son. He goes on then to, to tell some more of the story. Herod, feeling tricked that the wise men did not return, that the wise men didn't come, he sends soldiers. Again, another journey. Another journey sends soldiers from Jerusalem down into Bethlehem. And this time, it's not a positive thing, but instead, it's a horrible thing. Furious, he sends soldiers down to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem in that region that were two years old or younger. Bethlehem was not a large city. It was not a huge town. It probably only, they say, probably only had about 1,000 people that lived in Bethlehem. And of those 1,000 people, just do, using statistics, there probably was only 20 or maybe 30 families that would have had some kind of male child born during those two years. And yet, for those 20 or 30 families, they lost a son. They lost a child. It's horrific what Herod, what Herod does with these soldiers, what he does to retain the power of his own throne. But Matthew doesn't dwell on what Herod does, but instead, again, uses it to paint a picture for us, to point to another story for us so that we might have a better understanding of it. In verse 17, after he tells us that Herod had, had the children who were two years old and younger, according to the time he, he ascertained from the wise men, says in verse 17, then this was fulfilled What was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah? A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. This is a quote out of Jeremiah, chapter 31, that Matthew uses this passage, he uses this picture so that they might remember the exile that had come. You you we've again we've talked about this some in the past. The the Assyrian army came in and they destroyed the the Israelite tribes of the northern kingdom and the the southern kingdom. Judah was was still around for a while in the Old Testament until the Babylonians came. And the Babylonians came and invaded into Judah and into that southern tribe, into the southern kingdom, and, and began to destroy the temple and knock down the walls of Jerusalem. And it wasn't just that they came in and they destroyed the the fortress of of what the tribe of Judah had there, but they then began to collect up the people, especially any, any sons that might hold promise to their Babylonian kingdom, and they marched them out of Judah, out of Israel, and off to Babylon. And the place... The place that that happened was out of a town called Ramah. That would have been the gathering spot for, for the, the Babylonians began to collect up these young men. Daniel was one of those young men. They began to collect those up and before they sent them out on the exile, before they kicked them out, before they hauled them to, to Babylon, they collected them up in the city of Ramah, just north of Jerusalem. That was the gathering point. It also is the place where Rachel, Jacob's wife, from farther back in the Old Testament, that would have been the place when when she died in childbirth, that would have been the place where she would have been buried. So Jeremiah ties these things all together. And he says, this place where where Rachel is buried, where the the mother of, of of the Israelite people, Where she is buried in the same exact place as the gathering spot where all of our sons have been marched off to Babylon, where the exile begins. And so he ties those things together. And he says the voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel weeping for those sons that were marched off. Rachel weeping for these sons who have been killed here in Bethlehem. The rest of Jeremiah 31, that verse that we looked at there was verse 15. That's the quote that Matthew uses. But what Matthew wants us to see is even more than that. In fact, the very next verse, Jeremiah chapter 31, this will be on the screen as well, Verse 15 says, the voice heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because there are no more. But then verse 16 says, thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah is saying, Rachel weeps here at Ramah because the sons are being sent off because we're being exiled, because we're being sent away. But don't weep because God will bring them back. It's not through Moses. It's not through a a rescuer that's raised up like Moses was. But instead, God works and brings them back and he begins to bring the children back. And Matthew is reminding us that there is a hope and that there is a future, that our children do come back. But he even wants us to see more than that, I think, in Jeremiah chapter 31. Matthew wants his readers and his hearers to remember the rest of Jeremiah's promise as well. A little later in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, that same chapter that Matthew quotes here, he says, This trail of tears finds its climax, and the promised Messiah is to come. Listen, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. It's also on the screen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But he says, this is the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Matthew wants us to remember that God has made a promise, that there is a Messiah that to come, that the exile is going to come to a close, but even more than that, there's this new covenant that God is making that God has made with us. He's going to forgive our iniquity. He's going to remember our sin no more because he's going to make us his people by writing, by writing his law on our hearts. Matthew wants us to remember the promise of the Old Testament. He even brings that story to completion at the end of chapter two with another dream. Joseph has another dream. This time the, the angel comes and says, It's time for you to head back. You're, 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 you're free from, from being here in Jerusalem or in, in Egypt. You now are able to head back. They 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 find out that Herod's son is now in charge of that area where Bethlehem is, and so they, they're afraid, they don't want to go back there. Instead, they want to go farther to the north, and so they head back to Nazareth, farther in the northern part of the kingdom. And Matthew, again, tells us that this was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. He doesn't list specific prophecy as he does with the other ones. He, he kind of broadens it out to what was spoken by all of the prophets, And we can't find a passage, you can't find a passage in the Old Testament that says that he would be called a Nazarene. That's not going to be found in the Old Testament. But if you've been reading through the book, you you have been able to see that most commentators will say that this prophecy that Matthew is pointing back to comes from Isaiah chapter 11. That there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch that has his roots shall bear fruit; this Nazarene word is Nestor. that's the, that's the word for branch in Hebrew, and that word Nezarene would have been this phrase that Jesus is being called from Nazareth. The town of Nazareth was probably named after Isaiah chapter 11. It was It was originally settled by some of David's family and they made their name a messianic name. They called the town Nazareth, And so now Jesus is from the branch, from the root of Jesse. All of these, all of these pictures, all these pictures help us to remind us, help to remind us of the promises of the Old Testament. Each of these journeys points to the Old Testament prophecies that are being now fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew wants us to see that. He wants us to see the pictures from the Old Testament. But even more than that, he wants us to see it for ourselves and know that these pictures, these pictures that are coming to fruition here in in the live time in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, they, they remind us of what's happened in the past but they also give us hope for what's to happen in the future. They want to remind us that God has provided hope in the past and he will do it again in the future. That God has made a new, God made a covenant in the past, but he's made a new covenant for us in the future. That God has made a way for us through Jesus. Worship team is going to come this morning and lead us in just a moment. But as they're coming, I I, I just I, I want to ask you today as you hear about these journeys, as you hear about these promises of the Old Testament, I think Matthew wants you to think about your own journey as well. And as we conclude this morning, that's my question for you. Where are you on your journey in the midst of this promise today? Just like the Jacob and his family, maybe you have left your home in search of greener pastures. And you have come only to find the end of your favored status and now you cry out in oppression, you cry out in desperation, you cry out hoping that God might hear you in the midst of your hardship. Or maybe, like those that are marched off in the exile, You have, through no fault of your own, found yourself far, far from home, far from the temple, far from everything that you once grabbed hold of and held dear. Or maybe maybe you're settled exactly where you have always been meant to be, just like those that are in Nazareth, just like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. I don't know where you are in the midst of your journey today. But I know that the child that was moved from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth later in life tells the story of another son who was on a journey. And as he tells that story, he says, this son grabbed everything that he could from his father and he headed out on his own to make it on his own to run away from home. He was looking for greener pastures, and he turns his back on his father. And through both this son's choices and through the circumstances that were put on to him, he finds himself far, far from home. But Jesus, as he tells the story, says that the son comes to his senses. And in an act of repentance, begins to head for home to ask his father for forgiveness. And as Jesus tells that story in Luke chapter 15, he says the son is, I think, practicing his speech. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Will you bring me back? Can I be a servant in the household? And Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, still rehearsing his lines, the father spots him, sees him, runs to him, And embraces him and brings him back into the home, into the family. I don't know where you are in your journey this Christmas season. But I know that Jesus tells us that he is the way and the truth and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. That wherever you are in your journey today, we have hope Through Jesus, everyone, everyone who comes home to the Father comes through faith in Christ. So my hope for you this morning, my hope for you in this Christmas season, wherever your journey has taken you, is that you might turn and lift your eyes to Jesus. That you might see that there is a hope in the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, that comes in the New Testament. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that we can find the Father only through him. So come home. Come to Jesus today and rejoice and worship him. Please stand with me as we sing today.
1: and unstable come know you are not
0: him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood made us a kingdom priest to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen Merry Christmas.